Lord, we thank you that you sought us out. We thank you as you revealed in your word that you are the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, you will leave the 99 and go hunt for the one lost sheep. And you will hunt, as it were, until you find it. And you will pick it up and carry it back home. You have sought us out, each of us. You have loved us before the foundation of the world. And you sent Jesus to die for us in due time. We thank you that our Savior lives and that we do have a hope of eternal life that none can take away from us. So teach us by your Holy Spirit this evening. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. We are in John uh, chapter 11, and we're going to pick up at verses 47 through 57 this evening. That's going to be the section that we're going to be expositing. Remember, in, in the early part of John 11, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And we know from that that story that Mary and Martha were upset that Jesus wasn't there. If he had been there, our brother would not have died. But we're told in the scriptures, Jesus made it very clear. He deliberately delayed going to Bethany to see his dear friend Lazarus in order that he might die because he knew exactly what he was going to do. And he waited until... Because Bethany was only two miles away from Jerusalem, all these Jews were coming out to comfort Mary and Martha for the loss of their brother. Jesus knew that there were going to be these Jews there. And we remember we saw that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right before he told Lazarus to come forth, he prayed, my father, you hear me always, and I'm praying. He prayed audibly, the text says, so that the Jews present would hear that prayer and that they would see this incredible miracle. And it was, uh, without a doubt, the greatest sign, the greatest miracle. Remember the whole theme of the book of John there in John chapter 20 is that Jesus performed many signs, many more than what's recorded in the gospel account in order For what purpose? That men might see the sign and might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And let's always uh, keep in mind that the miracle is to create a sense of awe. Just imagine when Lazarus, after four days in the tomb, whose body had already been beginning to decompose because Martha says, don't open that because there's going to be a stench. And yet here comes walking at a man completely healed. Now Jesus did that and we're told in our text here that, look look what it says in verse 45. Many therefore of the Jews who had come to Mary beheld what he had done, believed in him. And that's what Jesus wanted. And that's why he waited till Lazarus would die so he could do this incredible miracle. Now, while we have those who who saw this amazing miracle of Jesus, 
while those people believe, now we have already seen just because it says they believe in him doesn't always mean a saving belief. You got to look at the context. I think all indication here is that they really did believe because the other group, notice, look what it says, verse 46, but some of them, meaning those Jews, went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And so we see there's two groups of people, those who believed in the miracle and those who don't. Well, both saw the signs, didn't they? Both saw the same miracle, right? And we're told when these Jews, and they were not, they didn't go under good pretense. Basically, here's what they did. They went to rat on Jesus is what they did. Do you see what this Jesus has done? Look what he's done now. (laughs) And um, as a result, we're told in verse 47 Immediately, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council. What council is that? That's the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling body in the nation. They have an emergency meeting. And look what they said in verse 47. What are we going to do? For this man is performing many signs. Now, I don't want us to miss out the significance That statement right there, what are we going to do with this guy, Jesus? And they admit, they admit he was doing many signs. So they actually acknowledge that Jesus was doing this. They acknowledge, well, it wasn't just, what signs are we talking about? Well, in the previous chapters, he healed a man who was lame, And then in chapter 9, we read, he healed a man who was blind from birth. And then he's going to do his greatest miracle, raise a man who's been dead for four days. The Jews knew all of this. What are we going to do with him? And if you recall, Nicodemus was the one when he came, we we saw in John 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night, Nicodemus was part of that Sanhedrin. And if you recall, uh, Nicodemus says, Jesus, we know that you must be a prophet from God because nobody can do the signs you do if you're not from God. Now, that doesn't mean that Nicodemus was a believer yet. We have indications later on, I'm convinced that Nicodemus who with Joseph of Arimathea get the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, I believe, was a believer in the end. But at least he recognized that that sign meant that Jesus was the Messiah. You remember we just looked at in John 10, these Jews were saying, well, give us a sign that you are really the Christ. And Jesus said to him, remember what he said? Well, I've been telling you all along but you don't believe. You remember what he said, why you don't believe? Because you're not of my sheep. You're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And the reason you don't follow me is because you're not of my sheep. So these religious leaders 
exactly, acted exactly like those Jews who came out of Egypt centuries earlier. So what did the the Jewish nation, what did they see? Well, first of all, they saw 10 miracles in Egypt, right? When God sent the plagues upon Egypt and utterly decimated uh, Egypt, led them out of Egypt, takes them to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army is pressing in and uh, they have no escape. And then what, God, what does God do? He opens up the Red Sea, Israel crosses, and they get to watch God destroy Pharaoh and his entire army by bringing the waters over. They saw that miracle. In the wilderness, they were wandering for 40 years. What did God do? He fed them when they were hungry. He fed them manna from heaven every day. When they were uh, uh, thirsty, what did he do? He opened up a rock through Moses and, and gave them water. They, they saw all of those things. And yet, what does the scripture say in Hebrews 3? It says that God was angry with that generation because God says, they saw my works for 40 years. And yet God says, I loathe that generation because they always go astray in their hearts. And they have, this is God speaking, they have an evil, unbelieving heart turning away from the living God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the majority of the people that came out of Egypt perished and they never entered the the land of rest, Canaan, meaning they died in their sins. Most of Israel died in their sins in unbelief. And so the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the Sanhedrin, they saw all these incredible signs just like their forefathers saw and it didn't make any difference. And they were afraid. Now, what were they afraid of? Well, take a look at what they were afraid of. Look at verse 48. What they were afraid of. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we don't, basically here, they were beating themselves up that they hadn't done something sooner to deal with Jesus. Because he says, if we allow this to go on much longer, everybody's gonna be believing in him because of these signs. And again, because of the signs, there were many believing in him, but didn't phase the religious leaders. If we don't stop him, then the Romans are going to come in, take away our place, meaning the temple, Jerusalem, and take away our nation. Now, well, the Romans had already occupied Judea, but they gave a lot of freedom, uh, a certain amount of freedom to the Jews, although they did occupy uh, that uh, Judea at that period of time. So what was the Sanhedrin's fear? Well, the fear was this. If all these people are start following Jesus, now remember what what does Jesus says the purpose of the signs are? That you may believe I am the Christ, meaning the Messiah. And 
the concept that the Jews had of the Messiah, and here's where they were greatly mistaken. Their understanding of the Messiah when he would come was basically a political leader who would destroy their enemies, namely the Romans. And then you had that sect of zealots who were by force trying to get rid of the Romans. And so what the Sanhedrin perceived is this. If we allow this man to go on, all these people to believe in him as the Messiah, then what Rome is going to do, they're going to perceive this as a political threat, and then they'll come down and crush us with one of their armies. Now, we already know there was this attitude. uh, If you recall back in John 5, when Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children, Turn over, turn back to John 5 for a minute and let's read that. John 5, and basically verses 14 and 15. Let's see. No, it's actually, I'm sorry, it's John 6. 14 and 15. John 6, 14 and 15. So Jesus has just fed that multitude, which was probably about 25,000 people when you consider all of them together. Verse 14, when therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force, meaning they were going to kidnap him. (laughs) To make him what? King withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So you already had these Jews who wanted to take Jesus because, now that doesn't mean they believed him as the, the Messiah in a spiritual sense. They said he's this great prophet and we can use him against the Romans. And Jesus would have nothing of it, of course. And so there, there was some concern then that the religious, religious leaders said, if we don't stop him, it's going to get out of hand and the Romans are going to come and crush us. So the failure of the religious leadership in the Jews again was they thought of the Messiah as a political uh, leader that would destroy their enemies. Now, here's where they blew it. They had no idea that the Bible prophetically had said the Messiah would what? First come as a suffering servant. All you have to do is read that magnificent Messianic chapter of Isaiah 53. It is is phenomenal. It's all about Jesus. And he hadn't even been born for seven centuries to come. And yet it's prophesied about him. But he would come as a suffering servant. And Jesus had already been telling people, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And therefore, 
Later on, we're going to see that when the Jews, after Jesus is arrested, they send him up because they can't deal with anything because they don't have that authority because Rome has control, but they want Rome to deal with them. So the Jews, because they can't kill him at this point, they deliver him up to Pilate for Pilate to deal with him. And when Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, I am. But Jesus said something very important. We're going to see that in John 18 when we get there. Jesus says, but my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it were of this world, my disciples would be fighting right now. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now, what did he mean by that? He means my kingdom's origin is not of the earth. I am from above. The origin of my kingdom is spiritual. And that's why my disciples aren't fighting because it's spiritual in nature. But the Sanhedrin, they didn't understand that. They could not grasp that. And like we see here, that the Sanhedrin, like all unbelievers, they dread the gospel. They dread the success of the gospel because it'll be the undoing of them. Because remember what they said, if we don't stop him, all these, everybody's gonna believe in him. And they, they couldn't have that. They could not tolerate that. So we know, we know that the Sanhedrin envied Jesus. They were jealous of him. In fact, we know that for a fact because later on in, in Matthew 27, 18, when they deliver up the Jews, the Sanhedrin deliver up Jesus to Pilate, it says that Pilate in Matthew 27, verse 18, he says he knew that they envied Jesus. They were jealous of him. Remember, they, they loved to be seen of the people on the corners with their long robes and their prayers, Jesus said. They love to be seen of men and they just could not stand it that Jesus was gaining this great popularity among many of the Jews. You know, even John, remember John the Baptist disciples, they had a state of envy. They, they came to, to John and says, you know, John, uh, there's a lot of people following Jesus and they were concerned about what, what about your ministry? And John the Baptist had to set them straight by saying, look, I must decrease and he must increase. I'm the messenger. I'm not the Messiah. He is the Messiah. I must decrease from the scene. So even John the Baptist disciples had a certain envy about the popularity of Jesus. Of course, the Sanhedrin, they wouldn't tolerate it at all. Now look at verse 49. It brings out the ruthlessness of Caiaphas, who was uh, the high priest. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Now, he was speaking to his fellow chief, uh, fellow Sanhedrin members. It was kind of an insult to him. He said, look, you guys don't know anything. Let me tell you what needs to be done. And look what, look what Caiaphas says 
in verse 50. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now, Pilate could have said, you know, we could silence him. We could, we could imprison him. We could banish him. We could do all those things, but they didn't, that's not what he said. We got to kill him is what we got to do. That's the only answer. We got to kill Jesus. So Caiaphas was the ultimate pragmatist and the ultimate utilitarian. What do I mean by that? Well, as the pragmatist, the end justifies the means. Whatever it takes to save the nation of the Jews, that's what we got to do. If it means killing Jesus, that's what we got to do. He's a utilitarian, which is a philosophy. Whatever the majority believes is right, that's what you ought to do. And it's better for the majority not to be destroyed, but at least one man. So to save the nation, meaning the Jewish nation, it's better that we go out and kill this man, Jesus. Now, what's interesting here, what was Caiaphas trying to, how was he trying to persuade the Sanhedrin? He says, again, if the people raise up and it gets known to the Romans that there is a king, and remember, that's what Pilate eventually will ask Jesus. Are you a king? Yeah, I'm a king, but not the kind of king you should be concerned about in one sense. Now, the Romans, they weren't going to tolerate any other king besides Caesar. You know, we have later on in the book of Acts, we got that instance where Paul and his apostolic team, they come to uh, Thessalonica. And when they're in Thessalonica, Paul and then they were preaching. And if you look at Acts 17 and verse four and following, it says that the Jews were jealous and they wanted to do something. So they created a riot. What was happening in Thessalonica, we're told in Acts 17, that you had many prominent people, especially prominent women who were being converted, who were believing. And so they they caused a riot. There was this man named Jason who was a follower, was being persuaded by uh, the apostolic team. They drug him to the civil authorities. And here's what the Jews said. These men, referring to the apostles, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also proclaiming there is another king besides Caesar. See, that was it. They knew if they could convince the ruling authorities that the Christians were a political threat, then they could be dealt with. And that's how what the Sanhedrin, especially Caiaphas, feared. We cannot allow this to take place with Jesus. 
lest the Romans come and crush us. Now, here's the irony of the whole thing. The irony is this. The exact opposite of what Caiaphas wanted is exactly what happened. In murdering Jesus, they sealed their doom. Turn over to Matthew 27 for a moment. Now, Jesus has been delivered to Pilate. Remember, Pilate says, I don't find, I don't find any fault in him. And Pilate was trying to look for a way out to have to deal with Jesus. He said, this man doesn't deserve to be, to be crucified. Oh, I know what we can do. At this time of the year, we release a prisoner. So we got this murderer, Barabbas. So if I offer Barabbas and Jesus, surely they're going to choose Jesus. It says the Sanhedrin made sure when they went out in the populace, when he asked him, do you want Jesus or Barabbas? He said, yell the loudest for Barabbas. And that's exactly what they did. Now, I want you to look at Matthew 27, 22 through 26. It's so important. Now, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Now, what, what he did was, this man doesn't deserve to be crucified. But you keep wanting him. He says, all right, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. The washing of his hands is, I'm, I'm absolving any guilt here, and it's on your head in me crucifying him. Now, here's the, here's the, the horrible thing that they said. Look, look what they say. Here, look what the multitude said to Pilate. Verse 25, and the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. They had no idea of what they just said. What was the last plague in Egypt that broke the backbone of Egypt? It actually came out of the mouth of Pharaoh said, we're going to kill all the firstborn of the Jews, Moses says, nuh-uh. You just pronounced judgment on your own firstborn is what you have done. So when this generation, these people cried out, oh, let this blood be on us and our children. Back up a chapter in Matthew 26. Before he was delivered up to Pilate, he's before the Sanhedrin. Look at Matthew 26, verses 63 through 64, he got Caiaphas there. 
Now, Jesus hadn't been saying anything. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, meaning I'm putting you under an oath is what I'm doing. So he puts him under an oath. Are you the Christ or not? And he says, verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourselves. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh, you're about to see. Now, Jess this morning talked about there are comings of Jesus revealed in the scriptures. And what he's been preaching on is that final coming at the end of the world. But there is another coming And the Old Testament talks about comings of God to Israel. And in the Old Testament, it's always, when it says coming on the clouds is a reference of judgment. It was judgment upon Egypt. It was a a judgment upon uh, Babylon. Uh, And so that phraseology carries judgment. And so what Jesus was saying to Caiaphas and to the whole Sanhedrin you know what? You are going to see the Son of Man at the right hand of God because when Jesus was resurrected and he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, in fulfillment of Psalm 110 that Peter said on the day of Pentecost, by the way, what will he do? He will, it says that he will put all his enemies under his So what happened in, the, in 70 AD, what Caiaphas was convincing the Sanhedrin, if we don't deal with Jesus, the Romans are going to come and they're going to crush us. And that's exactly what happened. It only came 40 years later. And in 70 AD, Titus and the Roman army sieged Jerusalem And Jesus says, in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, the the abomination of desolation, they will desecrate the temple. In fact, Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. Not one stone. And when Titus and the Roman armies laid siege, the suffering was such such a great magnitude that Titus was on a hill looking over to Jerusalem. People were dying so fast they couldn't throw the bodies over into um, Gehenna, which was a a, a, uh, refuse where dead bodies and everything were thrown over to. They were dying so fast they couldn't do it. And Titus saw that people this is according to Josephus' account in his Antiquities of the Jews. Six feet deep of dead bodies. And Titus says, this is not my doing. This is not my doing. 1.1 million people died in Jerusalem. 
Jesus says it's the greatest tragedy the world has ever known. You know, in the bombing, somebody, well, you know, the Americans dropped a bomb upon Hiroshima. Well, 90,000 people died in that, but not 1.1 million. And when you understand the significance of one place of suffering, nothing has ever compared to what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so what Caiaphas says, it's better, it's better that we kill Jesus to save the nation and he pronounced his own judgment. He just came 40 years later. Now look at verse 51. It's very interesting, verse 51, John 11. And behold, let me get to John here. Verse 51, so now when, when, when Caiaphas said in verse 50, it's, better, it's more expedient that one man die for the people, the nation, than for the whole nation to perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Now, this really is an intriguing passage. Caiaphas had no idea that what he was going to say was prophetic. And here's the amazing thing. God allowed this wicked religious leader to actually be a prophet. And you go, really? Really? A wicked man being a prophet? Yeah. Do you remember the Old Testament story of Balaam? The one who the don- uh, God spoke through the donkey? Balaam was hired by, for money to go and curse. The king of Moab wanted the armies of Israel to be cursed by Balaam, a non-Israelite prophet so that the Israelites would not defeat them. So he was paid money to do that, but God put it in his mouth not to curse, the scripture says, but he ended up blessing, not cursing, which really upset the king of Moab. I hired you to curse them. But God prophetically put it in his mouth to bless Israel. So, In his prophesying that it's best for one man to die and that this man, Jesus, should die for for the nation, he was being prophetic because Jesus would die, but not in a sense, not in a sense that Caiaphas understood. Caiaphas, uh, is he a prophet? Yes. Was he a bad man? Absolutely he was a hardened enemy of Christ and the gospel. But what has Jesus said? Matthew 7. On that final day of judgment that Jess has been talking about, there are going to be those who says, did we not do many marvelous deeds? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not prophesy in thy name? You know when Jesus sent out the disciples to go through the cities of Israel, you know who went with them? It says all the disciples went. Who was one of them? Judas Iscariot. 
was one of them. So not everybody who can prophesy doesn't mean they're saved. You know, Proverbs 21, verse 1 is a great passage. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it however he wishes. Now, as the hearts of men are in the hand of the Lord, so are their tongues in the hands of the Lord. And God used the tongue of Caiaphas to say something that Caiaphas never really intended because Caiaphas was thinking about a political deliverance when all along God meant it to be a spiritual. And he used, he used Caiaphas to do this. So we see in verse uh, 52, and not for the nation only, but that he might gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So the, the prophecy of Caiaphas that God put in his mouth, we'll talk about that in here in a second. It says that it was that Jesus was going to die for the nation, but not the nation only, meaning not the Jewish nation only, but that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, this is no different, mind you. You say, God using this wicked man to prophesy? Well, God has used wicked men and nations all throughout history. Remember in Isaiah 10, God, because of the unfaithfulness of Israel, because their, their faithfulness was so great, God says, I'm going to send Assyria. And what does God call Assyria? This ruthless nation, the rod of my anger. That's what he called Assyria. And Assyria came into the northern kingdom and crushed it and dispersed the uh, 10 tribes that were occupied, the northern kingdom, carried them off into captivity. And then God turns around. See, here's the incredible thing. Here's the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Assyria is the rod of my anger to punish faithless Israel. And you know, if you look at Isaiah 10, then you'll see this. Here's what he says to Assyria. How dare you come and smash my people? You're going to pay for this. And he makes Assyria, the arrogant, pay for it. God is not the author of evil. The scripture makes that very clear. And this is no different than we saw, and I've talked about this before, in Exodus 4 when God says to Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart that he will not let the people go. And sometimes if we just leave it at that, we think, well, God's the author of evil. But what does Exodus 9 say about the very thing that is referred to in Exodus 4. 
it says that Pharaoh sinned again and hardened his heart not to let the people go. I thought God hardened, but then it says Pharaoh hardened. We've mentioned this before. What that means is God gave Pharaoh up to his own wicked heart to do depraved things. That's what that means. And God says, you can't blame me for it. See, we, we got to leave it like this. We got to accept what the scripture says. God is not the author of evil. He did not put it in Pharaoh's heart to do what he did. He didn't put it in Nebuchadnezzar's heart to go and smash uh, Jerusalem and carry him off to captivity. Did he plan it? Oh, absolutely he planned it. But he's not responsible for their actions. He, they're responsible just like, well, turn over to Acts 2 for a moment. I know we're jumping ahead to the crucifixion. Look at Acts 2. In Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost, verse 22 of Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The death of Jesus was planned. But it's your fault. Remember what he said to in, recorded in Mark 14, 21, Jesus says, the son of man is gonna go as it has been determined. But woe to the man that betrays him. It would have been better if that man had never been born. And who's he talking about? Judas Iscariot. So what we see, Caiaphas had one idea in mind, but God had another thing in mind. So who are these children of God that's being referred to through the prophetic words that God allowed Caiaphas to say? Well, he says they are children of God. Well, who are the children of God? Well, they're the spiritual children of God. One, meaning they're the spiritual seed of Abraham. They are the children of God. Now, when it says he's going to gather together, verse 52, into one, the children of God. So the children of God are going to be brought into one, meaning one body, okay? Those who are scattered abroad. Well, who are those that are scattered abroad? Well, let's turn back a chapter to John 10 and look at verse 14 through 16. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my leaf 
my life for the sheep and I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they shall hear my voice and they shall become what? One flock with one shepherd. There you have it. Well, who was Jesus referring to? The Gentiles is who he was referring to. Now, when Saul of Tarsus, the great enemy of the church, was on the road to Damascus to go arrest Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem, and Jesus meets him on the road and converts him in that amazing encounter, we're told, recorded in Acts chapter 9. He blinds Saul, and Saul goes to a, to a city, and then God, Jesus, comes to this man named Ananias and says, you're going to find this man, Saul, praying. And here's what Jesus said to Ananias about Saul of Tarsus. He says, go the way for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul, I mean Saul becomes Paul, the great apostle to the Gentile world. Three missionary journeys. And when in Acts 13, on one of those missionary journeys, his custom was to go into the Jewish synagogue and the Jews, they were just irate and they were causing trouble. And there in Acts 13, Paul says, you know what? I've had it with you Jews. You have proven yourself unworthy of the kingdom of God. I'm going to the Gentiles. And from that time on, he concentrated on preaching to the Gentiles. And guess what? The Gentiles believed. Not the Jews, but the Gentiles believed. And we're told in Acts 15 that you had a sect, the Judaizers, rose a dispute with Paul and Barnabas saying, you got to submit to the law of Moses in order to be uh, saved. Now they said, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you got to add the law of Moses. And Paul says, uh-uh, no, it is all by grace. It is not of the law. And a dispute arose. They couldn't settle it. So where do they go? They go to Jerusalem to the apostles in Jerusalem to settle the issue. That's the great council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And guess what? They deal with it. Paul relates all the wonders that were being done and, and all the Gentiles that were becoming Christians. It was exciting. But they were, there were some there that says, wait a minute. You know, we, we, what about the Gentiles? But you see, God had always intended to save the Gentiles. And then in, in that council, Peter gets up and says, look, I was of that mentality and I was given a vision to go to the house of Cornelius, and guess what happened? I preach in the household of Cornelius, and all these Gentiles believe, and guess what? We were baptized with the Holy Spirit 
fell on us at Pentecost, and guess what happens? The Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles, and the Jews realize, wait a minute, then we're not all that much special after all. If we, they got the same gift. So Peter says, Paul is right. And then James, the brother of Jesus, who's regarded as the head of the apostles, he gets up and says, you know what? Amos prophesied of what was to happen that's being borne out by Paul's missionary journeys. So the council of Jerusalem affirmed that all this success in, among the Gentiles was the plan of God after all. And guess what? God put it in the mouth of this wicked high priest to prophesy that Jesus would die for a nation. But it's not the nation of the Jews as such. It was a holy nation. And who are the children of Abraham? Well, Paul makes it very clear in Galatians 3.29. And you be Christ, you are the seed and heirs according to the promise. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you believe in Jesus, then you, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, you are the true recipients of the blessings of God and of Abraham. And Paul in Ephesians 2 says, what has God done? He's broken down that wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles and brought into together a one people, Jews and Gentiles together praising the name of Jesus. But that was always the plan of God. Always. So we see and we learn from Revelation 5. Turn to Revelation 5, 9. That's a wonderful passage. Because it pictures that that great scene in heaven of the Lamb at the right hand of God, the 24 elders all singing a new song, 24 elders representing the church, the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning all the people of God in history. And it says the 24 elders are singing a new song saying, look at verse nine, worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou was slain and did purchase for God with thy blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In other words, I am the good shepherd. And I will go and gather my sheep from wherever they are. So every language group on the face of the earth, every national group of people are going to be brought into one glorious holy temple unto God, the church. Which is why, by the way, we've told you, I think some of you are aware of this. A lot of churches, they have the United States flag in part of the sanctuary. At Chalcedon, we have never had a United States flag. 
And here's the reason. Are we unpatriotic? Are we non-Americans? No, no. In the church of Jesus Christ, there's not just one nation. We are a universal people. And so as a symbolic reference, we're not going to have something that God is with us as a nation as such. Of course, he has his elect in the United States, but he has his elect in China, in Russia, in Ethiopia, in Brazil, in the islands all over the world. Oh, Jesus, Caiaphas says, he's going to bring them together all over abroad. Exactly right. Jesus died for his people. Now, turn back to John 11 as we conclude here. We're told after that prophecy of Caiaphas, verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. In other words, they had made up their mind, we will get him. And when we get him, we're going to kill him. And look what it says in verse 55, well, verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore, they were seeking for Jesus. They said, we're hunting him down. You could call it a posse. We're looking for him. And they were saying to one another, as they stood in the uh, temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They're saying, you think he's going to show up? This is the Passover. Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So they got a posse out looking for Jesus. And anybody who knows about where he is, you better tell us. Or really else, if you know where he is and you don't tell us, you're going to be in heaps of trouble. Now it says when Jesus knew that they, were de- they had determined to kill him, it says he publicly uh, withdrew himself. Let me ask you this. You think Jesus was a coward? You remember all the times, <clears throat> well, let's put it this way. Later on, this is not the first time the Jews were out to kill, uh, look for Jesus, right? And what does the scripture says? He just escapes from those. Some wanted to throw him off the cliff in Nazareth. Some in the temple said they tried to seize him in order to report him and kill him. And Jesus would escape. What does the scripture says? Because his hour had not yet arrived. You know, in Jesus, he told his disciples, who didn't fully understand, it's recorded in Matthew 16, 21 and following, Jesus kept saying to his disciples, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I will be delivered up by the chief priests 
and the Pharisees, and the Son of Man will be crucified and will be raised on the third day. And Peter says, uh-uh, oh, we're not gonna allow that, Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because your interests are not the interests of God, but of man's. Why did Jesus come into this world but to die for his people, to redeem them? That's why he came. And he wasn't going to die until it was the hour. And you remember at the Last Supper, we'll get to that here later in John, he goes out, Judas is left because he says, what you got to do, go do. Judas goes and betrays him, comes and says to the Sanhedrin, whoever I kiss on the cheek, that's the man. So Jesus comes out. He knows they're coming for him. Judas comes. You know, it's interesting. The scripture says later in John, he says, friend. Jesus called him friend. Do you betray me with a kiss? It says in the Psalms that a friend would betray him. And remember, Peter, John later records that Peter got his sword out. Remember, he said, we're not going to let this happen. And he cut the ear off of the servant called Malchus. Jesus says, put your sword up. Do you not think, Jesus says, that I could pray and ask my father and he would send more than 12 legions of angels if, if I wanted it? But no, I have come into this world to die for my sheep. And so we see Jesus, the scripture says, I voluntarily lay down my life for my sheep. No one forced Jesus. He, he, he knew what was coming. Why do you think he sweated, uh, had sweat of blood in the garden? He, he, he says, Father, if there's any other way that this can happen, do it. Nonetheless, your will be done, not my own. He knew it was going to be agonizing. It wasn't the fact it's horrible that Jesus would die. Crucifixion is a horrible way to physically die. But the most horrible thing that happened to Jesus was he who walked with God all his days. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father, according to Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to crush the Son because he had to crush him for our sake. He had to crush the Son to pay the penalty for our transgression. And so we see it's not going to be long now in the Passover week. But isn't it amazing how men, some men can see the great miracles and believe other men see the same miracles and they want to go kill that person. But you see, that's because they're not of the sheep. The word of God is, is amazing. And the counsel of God is amazing. Let's rejoice that we are among the redeemed. And that one day, 
just like yesterday, Lydia got into her place. So one day we will be there too because of what Jesus did. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. What, what can we say? But thank you. Let us live lives consecrated to you. You've told us our life is not our own. You bought us with a price. You bought us with your precious blood. Lord, all our days, let us live for your glory so that one day we too will be in your presence. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.